You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, we're in a series called Inked, and the idea behind this series called Inked is that uh, um, we live in a culture where people want to express on the outside, right? We want to, like, post it. We want to express it. We want to say it. We want to ink it. We want to tell other people what we're all about and what's going on. But we find out in Scripture that you have been inked by Christ. You've not been inked by an octopus or inked uh, by a needle or inked in another way, but that, that the Spirit of God, when you accept Christ, when you surrender to him, he writes, not chiseled on stone, but he writes on the human heart. He begins to transform you from the inside out. And when you have the ink, if you will, of the spirit of God on the inside, written on your heart because your faith in Christ, God's Holy Spirit begins to transform your life. And there's hope in that because it's not just all up to us. It's what God is doing in and through us. And, and we live in a culture that wants to make a statement. Again, we say it, we post it, we ink it, we want to like stand out, but we're strangely mesmerized by people who reject the fame. Like people have every opportunity to become famous, but they say, no, 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 I'm not the hero. They're the real heroes. And we wonder like, well, what is it about you? And Jesus was that kind of person that time and again, he had opportunity to become famous, to lead an uprising, to do things that were amazing. And what happened was he oftentimes rejected what was the norm for the human person to do who wanted to make a statement for themselves. And so we've got a theme to this series, and it's a theme verse. Will you uh, look at it on the screen with me as I read? It's from 2 Corinthians 3.3. Paul writes, he says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human heart. So you've been inked by God. You've been inked by God on the inside, and that begins transformation. The trouble is that there are times in life when life squeezes us and it presses us and life gets so difficult and it gets really hard. And there are times that you and I feel abandoned by God. I think sometimes because we're inked on the inside, we forget on the outside, like, God, are you really with me? God, are you going to forsake me? Are you going to get me through this? Do I really have what it takes to live a godly life? Because we've been inked on the inside, we start forgetting on the outside. Do I have what it takes to actually make it? And I want to just ask you, have you ever felt forsaken by God? Ignored by him? You know, for some of you in this room, it's been a tough year. Maybe for you financially, maybe with you relationship loss, maybe for you it's personal loss, or, or perhaps you're just wondering, is 2018 going to get better at all? You're just wondering, is it going to be able to turn? Is it, could it get better? Because it's been a rough one so far. Well, here's why you need this sermon. In the worst times of life, it's easy to forget that God has inked you and will never, ever forsake you. That's why you need this sermon. It's easy when life squeezes us to forget that God has inked us on the inside and will never, ever forsake you. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was going through some really rough times. In fact, uh, he was from a family that had to move a lot. If you're uh, from a military family in this room, you understand what that's talking about, where you attach, and then you detach, and then you reattach, but you know you have to detach again. And, or maybe you've had a lot of people move in and out of your lives, and you know what that's like. My friend had had to move a lot. In fact, at the time I was talking to him, he didn't actually 
actually even have a permanent address. And as he was telling me his life situation and just how difficult some of the things were recently in his life, he, he told me how he had gone to several churches. And he had gone to these churches, and when he first got there, they were very welcoming and happy to have him there. But over time, they started making fun of him, or they rejected him, and he just felt like an outcast. He ended up leaving those churches. And uh, and he decided not just to kind of move on from them. And people that he considered to be his close friends had recently like just abandoned him. They saw he was having hard times in his life and they kind of abandoned him. And then while he was downtown, he got mugged, he got beat up, and he, uh, his stuff was stolen. And at that time that we're talking, that I'm talking to him, he basically just says this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he said this, I thought he was feeling that God had forsaken him or God had abandoned him or that God just plain didn't care. Have you ever felt that way about God? Wondering, God, do you really care about me? Now, my friend I'm talking to is Jewish, and the reason I tell you his nationality or his heritage is that to help you understand is I came to understand what he was really trying to say. Let me explain it. A Jewish person, especially if you're an Orthodox Jew, you would memorize about the first five books of the Bible. That's about, in your Bible, that's about that much. And let me just say, they would memorize most of the Mosaic Law and the Torah and many of the Psalms and Proverbs. Now, I just want to say, uh, in comparison to the amount of Scripture you or I have memorized, it probably wouldn't be that much, would it? Right? But they would memorize a lot. And so, they would memorize those things. And so if we asked ourselves how much of the book of the Bible we've memorized, it would be a lot less. And so when my friend quoted the verse that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Jewish mindset, it was intended to communicate the entire message of the chapter that he's referring to. Like, for example, many of you have heard the, the chapter in the Bible of Psalm 23. And if I said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And it might make you think of the rest of the chapter. If I sum it up, it, Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You present a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? It might, if I say the first verse, it might make you think of the rest of the chapter, because that's what it would do. And so, at first, I thought my friend was saying, God, you've forsaken me. Like, he's feeling rejected by God. But as I came to understand, he was communicating to you and to me something very different. Some of you know my friend. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus, from the cross, quoted the first verse of Psalm 22. If you have your Bible, open with me to Psalm 22. As we get there, we find that in Mark in the New Testament, the account of the crucifixion. In chapter 15, verse 33, it says that at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabanthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus' quote from the cross was intended to communicate to all those Jewish people who were watching to strike them as they were watching his execution with the entire message of Psalm 22, not just the first verse. So let's look at Psalm 22 together to understand what Jesus was saying then and what Jesus is saying today to us. Now, Psalm 22 was written by David, King David, and it was written about 1,500 years before Jesus was crucified. 
In fact, it was written almost 400 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. So at the time that Dave is writing, he has no concept of crucifixion. However, Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm about the suffering of the Messiah. And we're going to look at it together here today. In Psalm 22, beginning with verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by at night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And then he makes his request, the psalmist does. He says this to God. He's, he's saying, listen, God, so far in the past you have rescued my ancestors. They suffered, but you didn't despise them. They suffered, but you saved them. They suffered, but you rescued them. He's recalling his history because he's currently being pressed and squeezed and in pain. And now he makes his request, verse 11, he says, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. That's his request. And the question is, did God forsake God on the cross? Psalm 22 is going to answer that question. But first, they begin to introduce the enemies. What enemies are around at the time? What enemies are surrounding? And so David writes, he says, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. You get the idea of like mad cows or bulls or, you know, a matador in front of an angry bull. You get this picture. He says, second, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my what? And my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. See, and Jesus introduces this psalm from the cross. And as people are standing there, they can look and go, wait, wait, for a minute, like I'm looking over there and over there I see soldiers actually gambling to see who gets to keep Jesus' clothes because he's not going to need them anymore. He's dying on the cross. In the New Testament of John, chapter 19, verse 24, at the crucifixion account, John writes of the soldiers saying, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. 
Where did that come from? From Psalm 22. What verse did Jesus quote from the cross? Verse 1 of Psalm 22. Verse 23 says this, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Remember, we've asked the question, did God forsake God on the cross? And the psalmist, in a prophetic moment, writes this of the future suffering of the Messiah. Verse 24, speaking of God, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Let me ask, can you keep yourself alive? Did you tell your heart this morning when we woke up, hey, please, just keep going all day long. Really appreciate it. No, we can't keep ourselves alive. We, we think that we breathe, but the reality is we're given every breath that we have. We cannot keep them, ourselves alive. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Who are those future generations? Us. What's happening right here, right now in church? We're being told about him. We are the future generations. We are telling about Jesus. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This psalm, again, was written over 400 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. You say, why did they invent crucifixion? Well, they found out when they wanted to cause judgment, execute judgment on somebody, and they were going to die for it, they found out sometimes they just died too fast. You pull, tie them to a stake and you light them on fire, they, they die too quick. You stick them with the sword, they go, ah, they die too quick. You put a wild lion and it grabs them by the back of the neck and they die too quick. It, they just realize too fast. So they said, how can we invent a suffering way of death, the ultimate suffering that will prolong the execution and the suffering for the person condemned to death? And so they began to invent crucifixion. 400 years after the psalm was written where he describes that Jesus' hands are pierced, his feet are pierced. 1,500 years before the soldiers gamble for Jesus' clothes. Jesus is pointing out the prophecy of Psalm 22 and the fulfillment to all. And, and you ask the question, well, why? Why didn't Jesus just from the cross say, hey, everybody open up your Torah to, you know, to Psalm 22. I want to read to you, you know, from this. It's because I don't think you understand crucifixion. First of all, Jesus was crucified with two other people on either side of him, thieves who were condemned to death. They had been crucified but had not been beat up previously. Jesus, on the other hand, had been tortured before he ever got to the cross. That he was blindfolded and soldiers would punch him in the face and say, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. They took a crown of thorns and they pressed it down into his head and began to mock and worship him. Oh, you're the king of kings, you're our king, and they mocked him. 
They tied him to a pole and they took what was called the cat of nine tails. It was like a wood handle, but attached to it would be nine leather straps that were over nine feet long. And attached, tied into those leather straps were bits of bone or rock or glass and they would hold that thing back and a person would be tied to a post and they'd whip it around and it would wrap around the person as they're tied with their hands up. It'd wrap all around their torso and when it got to the end, it would just whip and just stick in them and then they would pull it back and it would just tear the flesh. At times it would pull pieces of muscle through the skin. And they did this to Jesus 39 times. 40 times typically kill the person. He's poured out like wax. The scriptures say that at the crucifixion, Jesus was barely recognizable as a human being because of how badly he had been tortured. So what happens then, they basically grab a hold of the person, they lay them down, they nail them to a cross, they put spikes through their hands, and then, I guess nails are short, but they would just say, hey, let's use one nail, and they'd just stack one foot on top of the other and drive a spike through both feet into a block so that they were pinned to that cross. They would dig a hole in the ground two to three feet deep. They would stand that cross up, and they would just get it right there and kick it into the hole, and when it fell, you were hanging in the iron cross formation, and if you were hanging in the iron cross formation when that thing landed, you couldn't support your body weight, and your shoulders would come out of joint. They would dislocate. So you now cannot, with your arms, pull yourself up because your shoulders are out of joint. So the only way to push yourself up would be to push on the two feet that have a spike through them to push up. And you say, why would you want to push up? Because when you are hanging in that position on a cross, your body holds you in the inhale position and you can't exhale. Have you ever been underwater and you took a deep breath and you went underwater and you were like under the water and you were like, I got to let some out because it's like the air is expanding. You're like, ah, I got to let some out. And then, you know, you finally had to come to the surface and get more, let your air out and get some more air in. Well, crucifixion, basically what it would do, it was, it would exhaust a person. They constantly had to push up with their feet to catch, to exhale and take the new breath in. And they'd have to push up again. And they basically, it was like they drowned while hanging to a cross above the water. It was a horrible, slow form of torturous death. And so Jesus on the cross with his bones exposed, his rib cage exposed, hardly looking like a man with a crown of thorns on his head, with his shoulders dislocated, pushed up with his feet and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to the Jewish person standing there, it would begin to make them think through all of Psalm 22. Can you imagine Jesus from the cross in that condition, still feeling it important enough to push up and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have the big picture. They don't understand the scope. They, don't, they even reject who I am. But that he would say that. That from the cross, he would push up and say, John, take care of my mother, Mary. And Mary, this is now your son. In other words, the family line, the provider for you, the one who's gonna take care of you. That he felt it important enough to do that from the cross. 
his mouth was so dried. He said it's like a potsherd. That's a, a fragment of pottery. It has no liquid to it. It can't hold liquid. And that's how dry he's saying in the psalmist is saying that the mouth is. And, and Jesus is poured out. So Jesus says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And if you're a Jewish person, you're looking around going, I'm thinking through that psalm. And I'm looking right over there. And look, the soldiers, they're, they're dividing. They're gambling for Jesus' clothes, just like it said in that psalm. And people are mocking him. And all these enemies are all around, whether they look like bulls or dogs or villains or whatever's around him. They're all mocking him. They're all against him. Even to the point where a non-Jewish person, the centurion, a Greek Roman soldier, when Jesus died, said, surely this man was the son of God. Even to the point where thieves on either side who were at first mocking him, one of them recognizes this guy's unlike us. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus pushes up and turns toward him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. A thief who deserved to die, and here's Jesus who didn't deserve to die. The last thing Jesus said before he committed his spirit and breathed his last was, it is finished. What do you think that it was that Jesus was talking about? Like, oh, my suffering's done. Oh, I've gone on this cross long enough. No, the it that he's talking about is the last verse of Psalm 22. It says, again, they will proclaim his righteousness as Jesus' righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, that's us, that he has done it. What's the it that Jesus is talking about? Is that he has secured salvation for those who will put their faith and trust to the work he did on the cross, that all of God's righteous anger against sin was poured out on Jesus, that he unjustly suffered taking our sin upon himself on the cross and through faith in what he did on the cross, we are now saved. He takes our sin and he transfers to us his righteousness. He has done it. Colossians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He says this in verse 13 of us, of people. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. That all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, all of our ability, inability to be good or good enough, God has taken it away and he's taken it upon himself, nailing it to the cross. That's what Jesus did. That's the it he was accomplishing there. So Jesus rises from the dead. By the way, he started to appear to people after he rose from the dead. Wouldn't you be mortified if you were one of the soldiers who punched him and said, tell me who did it? And Jesus rises from the dead. I always wondered, like nobody ever tells us what happened to those guys. <laughs> if you were some of the Pharisees who condemned him and he started appearing and you started hearing about it, how fearful would you be But Jesus starts to appear to people. In fact, at one sighting, he is seen and heard, witnessed by over 500 people. 
He appeared to smaller groups, of course, but, and into individuals, but at 500 people at one time, it's hard to discredit that. My dad was a trial attorney, and he said to me one time, he said, Dave, if I could get 500 witnesses, when you take all the depositions and they all collaborate, he goes, that's a shoe-in. I would love to have 500 witnesses for any of my cases. Jesus rises from the dead. He interacts with people for over 40 days. He then ascends to the Father and is coming back again. Now listen, some of you in your life, you walked in here today and you want to give up. Maybe you haven't said those words out loud, but you've been feeling it. You want to give up. But I want you to know that God stays with you in difficult circumstances, so trust him. He won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. You can't be bad enough to chase him off. And Jesus' message to you and me today is this. In my death alone is the rescue for your sins. Will you trust me? We've talked about this before, that God is not so loving that he saw us becoming just. His justice says, if you sin, the wages of sin is death. But I loved you enough to come in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to take your sins upon myself so that my justice is satisfied and my love provides the way for you to be saved. That is a beautiful thing. He didn't change his character. He didn't change his nature. He didn't go soft. He didn't stay too hard. He was the perfect balance of love and justice. Oh, if we could do that well as parents, amen. Listen, if God just simply said, I'm just going to love people no matter what they do, Jesus never would have had to go to the cross. But Jesus going to the cross shows us just how serious our sin is and what kind of cost that there could be. But God would provide a way out so that you and I don't have to bear the penalty in a place that the Bible calls hell. See, Jesus' statements from the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's not that God is turning his back on God and people get this idea in their head that like God was like, oh, all the sin went on Jesus, I gotta turn my back. And the truth is, that's bad theology. God doesn't turn his back on God. God in heaven doesn't turn his back on God in the flesh on the cross. They are one, they are there, they are the same. It is three in one out of love being given for you and for me. And he intended to do that all along. It was his plan. But from the cross, he cared enough to be preaching the message that says, this was my plan from long ago because I love you. It's the message of hope. Did you hear it? Will you believe it? Today is the day for you to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life because of what he did on the cross. It's so different from every other religion or every other belief. This was proven with flesh and blood at a real cost by the God who created you and formed you in your mother's womb. He loves you. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you would like to receive Jesus, that means put your faith in what he did on the cross then I'm simply gonna ask you right where you're seated, just silently to yourself, just pray a prayer like this after me. You just repeat something like this, that you're just saying, God, I'm just introducing myself. I'm, I'm in this statement giving faith to you. And you just pray something like this, right where you're seated. Just pray, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. 
write on my heart that I am yours. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you were God. Wash me as white as snow, because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.